Hi everybody, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Just for this week, uh, I'm, I'm now more or less um, keeping abreast of things, although I'm a bit uh, late on this roundup. So the um, first post of the week was uh, uh, from a guest, Derek Thorne, who got in touch to say he wanted to come back and sort of update on a post I wrote back in 2015 on whether development needed something like TripAdvisor, needed some kind of open source feedback system so people could rate my aid, could rate you know, the quality of aid and so on. Um, and he says, um, you know, the idea is that TripAdvisor and systems like it have put significant power in the hands of consumers, allowing them to publicly post feedback on hotels and restaurants without waiting to be asked, thus creating pressure for service to, services to improve. So could something like this achieve something similar in development and social change work? Now, Derek works for an organisation called Integrity Action, which has actually been trying to do this. So he was basically discussing some of their experiments with TripAdvisor-type feedback approaches and some of the things they've learned. I'll just pick out a couple of points. So one, who's the feedback for? With TripAdvisor, hotels and restaurants exist in an open market and consumers who have easy access to that platform can choose where to take their custom. In the development and social change context, it's not quite like that. Citizens really get to choose between different aid agencies, different projects. So the incentives need to work differently. One route is via donors. So you do a trip advisor so that donors can see whether implementers, NGOs, whatever you know, management consultants are any good, thanks to a trip advisor system. Um, but that it might work, but it's rather disempowering for citizens to rely on donors to have to uh, do all the pressuring. But what Derek says is it turns out that incentives can work much more directly than this. It's just a matter of making sure open feedback is visible to the right people. And one of the examples actually is not online, it's not digital. As part of Integrity Action's Shine project, secondary school students in Nepal monitored their own schools, reviewing things like teacher attendance and sanitation. And instead of using an app or digital tool, they just did a poster. With, a, with traffic light systems for each of 12 service delivery areas on a monthly basis. And it's displayed on the wall of the school and shared with local officials. So it gets to the right people and it's been picked up um, by so-called integrity clubs in the schools and it's had a really good impact. So that's interesting and it's nice to see the old analogue example in these digital days. But then what about power? The thing about TripAdvisor is that it's independent of the services being reviewed. Uh, which makes it more trusted. Um, but, you know, in, in the aid business, there's something called um, uh, sort of positivity bias, courtesy bias, it's called, where people who've received aid are very reluctant to be rude about it in case it jeopardises future aid. So you have a problem there in terms of um, people always basically blowing smoke um, and saying, yeah, this is great. I love this aid. This project's been brilliant. Because actually that's not much use if you're a funder or, a, or an implementer. You actually want negative feedback. Um, so that's uh, yeah, his argument, and it might just be a little bit self-serving given who he works for, is that that requires an independent feedback platform. You have to separate out the feedback from the funder so people are able to go on, say honest things, and not feel it's going to jeopardise their future well-being and, and funding streams. Um, and that's where he concludes. Second post was, um, came out of, I, I was on a panel, uh, there are so many panels in this world these days, this was a UN panel on decent work um, and sustainable development last week. 
And so to, to prep for that, I caught up on a, uh, an Oxfam report I hadn't, to my shame, read yet uh, before then, which is called Not In This Together. Uh, and it came out last month and it's written by Anouk Frank at Oxfam Novib, an art prepper at Oxfam uh, America. And it's, it's a really good report. It's like a classic NGO advocacy report. It's full of um, killer facts. Everything's got footnotes and references, good graphics, proper executive summary. Yeah, it's very well done. And what it's basically looking at is COVID as an engine of inequality in a particular case. And that is supermarkets, because Oxfam has been investing quite a lot of work prior to the pandemic, getting to know the global supermarket sector and analysing its impact on workers' rights. And so we already had this knowledge in the can, so we were able to take it and apply it and look at how the pandemic has affected supermarkets. And it turns out that supermarkets have been one of the big winners in the pandemic. Everybody's needs food. Yeah, everybody's been going to supermarkets. Supermarkets have had a very, very good time uh, financially. Um, and so what the report does is unpack who's benefited from that big boom. And it turns out um, workers and producers, especially women across the globe, uh, who we call essential frontline workers, have seen their income stagnate or even fall. So they have the people who actually produce the stuff in the supermarkets have not been benefiting. Um, so they went back and looked at the supermarkets we know best, which are the ones we put in this scorecard we've done previously, uh, and they look at the human cost of COVID and who's benefited, and they come up with some great killer facts. So between 2019 and 2020, total dividends distributed to shareholders increased by 123% from about $10 billion to $22.3 billion of these supermarkets we looked at. And you know, the biggest winners from those big shareholder dividends are not entirely rich people, but they're disproportionately rich people. Um, owners of non-listed supermarkets, so, so supermarkets that are not listed on stock markets, such as the Albrechts, who own Aldi North and Aldi South, and Dieter Schwarz, who owns the Schwarz Group, which has Lidl in it, and Kaufland, have seen their wealth increase by 37% and 30% respectively in less than a year. <coughs> And then just to show, you know, that it was already unequal and it's got even worse, a particularly striking fact, I thought. In 2018, it would have taken a woman worker processing shrimp at a typical plant in Thailand more than 4,000 years to earn what the chief executive of a top US supermarket earned on average in one year. In 2020, two years later, it would have taken her more than 5,700 years compared to 4,000 years to get that same result. And then it, 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 there was a really good quote in this panel I was on, which has stuck with me, um, which is UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, um, Guterres sorry, came up with a brilliant metaphor. COVID-19 has been likened to an X-ray, revealing fractures in the fragile skeleton of the societies we have built. And for me, the Oxfam report just adds, it's like an extra, you know, zooming in on a particular piece of that X-ray and giving some more detail. Very nice piece of work. Um, third of the week was links I liked. I can't really talk about it here because it's mainly graphics, which doesn't lend itself to an audio summary. So go and have a look at the links I liked. There are some funny cartoons, some powerful um, number crunching type graphics as well. And then the final post of the week is um, uh, a big research consortium I've been involved with and Oxfam's been involved with for the last five years called Action for Empowerment and Accountability which is uh, co coordinated by the Institute of Development Studies, 
based at the University of Sussex, which is one of the sort of standout international uh, research outfits, especially from a progress progressive point of view. And they've been they've and this was about thirty or so researchers on this program getting together after five years and saying, well, what have we found? What have we got? And I'm on the advisory group now. I did some actual work for them early on, but I stepped off then and they've got me back now in an advisory capacity, which is much easier because then you don't have to do any of the work. You just listen to the interesting stuff. Um, so I think my overall impression is captured in the blog title. You know, bottom-up research sheds new light, but blimey, it's difficult. Um, and it's kind of the speciality of the of IDS, that they, they combine that sort of good grasp of theory with a commitment to really deep bottom-up listening and participation. Anu Joshi, one of the IDS um, researchers, called it power and politics from below, which is a really good summary of the IDS approach. And so, you know, that some of the things they find, you know, in Mozambique, they, they were looking at micro political action, not these big social movements that make it onto the news in the rich countries, but, you know, little protests of a couple of dozen people and the transformative effect that has on the participants in those protests, especially, you know, uh, they were looking at women's leadership, I think. Uh, and the, the effect it has in creating new generations of women leaders. But then also, and this is where they look you know, in the fine detail, uh, some really interesting work in Pakistan showing the importance for women's activism of male gatekeeping, which has been remarkably resilient. So there's been huge progress on things like women's literacy, women getting into the workforce, but still even educated women often have to seek male permission to do things like you know um, how they use their time, access to transport, leaving their house, um, uh, getting a mobile phone, you know, it's incredibly restrictive, and that these these spaces are controlled by men. Um, and what they did was sort of look at this and say, well, it's not uniform, and they came up with quite an interesting sort of typology because there's a lesson here for governments and donors: if you want to encourage you know women's participation, then if male gatekeepers remain and you can't get rid of them, they just really dig their heels in, then you need to think, how do you, how do you work with that system rather than just assume them away? So what the, the typology that um, the, the, the researchers in A4EA came up with was, well, think about when men's gatekeeping is required and is not required, and when it's required on permissive attitudes and norms and restrictive attitudes and norms. So you'll yeah you may well to it may not necessarily be to engage men uh to achieve some things engage men in others uh, and in others you may just be blocked and you're not going to get any change at all so just a nice addition to thinking and that comes from looking from below um similarly really interesting we're looking at energy protests so around the world so two things are going on one is that governments are under huge pressure to cut fossil fuel subsidies and they're under pressure from the good guys. They're under pressure because of climate change and, the, uh, and under pressure from the fiscal challenges of, of um, COVID as well. So from a climate change point of view, fossil fuel subsidies are terrible. They encourage the use of fossil fuels. They benefit rich people and rich consumers uh, disproportionately. Just get rid of them. Whenever you try and get rid of them, all hell breaks out and there's, there's a riot. So the uh, researchers at IDS have actually been looking at energy protests. Um, uh, and, and what they find is, you know, they are actually really important parts of politics. So it's no good just saying, oh, they're an unfortunate failure and poor people don't know what's good for them. You know, they've got all these great quotes from people saying, well, look, we know it's not perfect, but that's the only benefit we see from the state. And if you turn up to try and go to work and suddenly the bus fare is tripled 
and you can no longer afford to go to work, you're going to get hacked off and you're going to throw a brick. And that's the kind of stuff they're looking at. So I thought that was really interesting because they're saying you have to look at the politics of cuts to fossil fuel subsidies from below rather than just have this kind of helicopter view that they all need to be removed. Um, so I think really nice, interesting. And uh, and also then the other, the, the extra step they take is to compare them with, with food riots, which uh, the same researchers, Naomi Hussein and others have looked at and say, well, actually they're quite, they're a bit different. So what are we, why are food riots and uh, fuel riots and food protests and fuel protests so different? Really very interesting piece of work. Final piece I'd pick up on this, I mean, is one of the things which occasionally frustrates me about IDS is that it hates binaries, it hates clarity, it loves to blur a boundary. Um, but I think that can be really helpful. And one of the ways they've done it is extending on that gatekeeper idea. They've done these really brilliant things called governance diaries, where they've they've gone in and employed you know, local students to go and interview families, poor families, in three countries every month. They keep going back month after month after month and build trust and build a picture of how that family operates and say, how do you resolve disputes? How do you resolve problems? It's called governance of the margins, this particular piece of work. And, it, and the governance diaries, I think, are absolutely fascinating. And what they discovered, and I've written about this quite a lot on the blog, is that um, when poor people need to resolve a problem, they very rarely go to the state. They go to the local imam or priest. They go to a former civil servant who's well connected. They go to the rich landlord. They have intermediaries. And those intermediaries yeah, see that as their role and they may well make some money out of it. Um, and there are crucial in, you know, go-betweens between what people need and what the state provides. Um, and I think that's a fascinating piece of work. And, and again, it has quite big implications for donors and, and governments because I think both of them have this rather simplistic view that you have the people and the people make demands on the state. Well, they don't. So go and look and see how it works actually before you think about what you fund and how you fund it or what policies you, you try and introduce. Um, final thing is um, <clears throat> about stickiness. So, you know, IDS and the researchers try and clear their heads of bric-a-brac. They try and get rid of priors and yeah, receive wisdom, but it's really difficult. And what I noticed in the course of the two days I was on this, uh, this seminar was that certain things kind of are very, very sticky and keep bouncing back. One of them is state centrism. If you're working on this stuff, it's incredibly easy to just think, okay, so there's the state. The state is the duty bearer. The people are the rights holders. So this is, we're basically trying to understand better how people get stuff out of the state. But this project is looking at fragile and conflict affected places like the Congo. Uh, well, it's actually looking at places like Pakistan, Myanmar, and Mozambique. And in parts of those countries, the state is really not the main player. There's bits of Myanmar where actually armed organizations, ethnic armed groups, are essentially a parallel government. And they actually are much more of a government than the, than the government in Yangon. So if you want to understand how this accountability thing works, you need to get rid of that idea that the state is always inevitably at the center. But actually, as soon as people start talking and thinking, they kind of flip back to thinking about the state. It's very hard. And I did end up wondering whether accountability as a word just inherently takes people in the direction of state centrism. And maybe we should use some other word. Somebody said, look, power is power. Just think about power and imbalances of power. 
rather than accountability. And maybe that's one way, but you know, this project's just coming to an end. It's called Action for Empowerment and Accountability. So it's a bit late now, but it was an interesting observation at the end of that seminar. Okay, that's enough. Me rabbiting on. I'll leave you to your weekend. Uh, talk to you next week. Bye.